section fifteen of final report of the advisory committee on human radiation experiments this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. final report of the advisory committee on human radiation experiments ethics of human subjects research a historical perspective chapter one part five the national institutes of health and the veterans administration during the late nineteen forties and nineteen fifties the aec and dod were by no means the only agencies sponsoring research involving human subjects the department of health education and welfare dhew through two of its components the public health service and the nih was emerging during this period as the dominant government agency sponsoring human biomedical research the veterans administration VA, as well conducted a large medical research program that involved the use of radioisotopes in numerous human experiments in the early nineteen fifties nih participated in some of the discussions preceding the issuance of the nineteen fifty three secretary of defense memorandum at the request of a dod official for information on nih's approach to the use of human subjects nih responded with an april nineteen fifty two letter that included a draft statement on the ethical principles underlying investigations involving human beings among its other provisions the april twenty eighth nineteen fifty two draft states that the person who is competent to give consent to an investigative procedure must do so he must have legal capacity to give consent and be able to exercise free choice without the intervention of any element of force fraud deceit duress constraint or coercion he must have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the nature of the investigation to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision he must therefore be told the nature duration and purpose of the experiment the method and means by which it is to be conducted the inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected and the effects upon his health or person which can reasonably be expected to come from his participation in the investigation he should understand furthermore that by his participation he becomes a co-investigator with the physician although it is not known what became of this draft statement around this time nih had good reason to develop a policy on the use of human subjects in nineteen fifty three nih opened the clinical center a state-of-the-science research hospital the center adopted a policy requiring voluntary agreement based on informed understanding from all research subjects and written consent from some patient subjects involved in research that the physician believed to be unusually hazardous written consent was required from all healthy normal subjects of research beginning in nineteen fifty four additionally nih began a system of group review of proposed research that became a model for today's institutional review boards irbs thus the nih policy appears to be the first instance of a single policy that expressly provides for consent from all subjects be they healthy or sick 
even so the policy was still limited to research at the clinical center and did not apply to the considerable amount of nih funded research being undertaken by grantees extramural research the question of whether patients as well as healthy normal volunteers should give written consent arose in the development of the nih policy legal counsel at nih advised that from a legal point of view there should be a written statement indicating the patient's awareness of the nature of the particular investigation in which he was to participate and acceptance of any particular inconvenience or risk inherent in his participation a signed form offered the best proof that a policy of informed consent was followed for all subjects enrolled in studies at the center the nih attorney wrote that while the clinical center's medical advisory board did not disagree with the principle it did disagree with the need for a written statement of the members that expressed their views and most did so all rejected such a proposal the rejection was due as i understand it not to any particular detail but rather a more basic objection to written as opposed to oral statements there was apparently no objection to providing the patient with enough information to permit him to exercise an informed choice of participation or refusal as long as not reduced to writing for his signature Nonetheless the principle that all research subjects including healthy subjects in the normal volunteer program and patient subjects should make an informed choice seems to be acknowledged in the medical advisory board's position the nih clinical center approach adopted by the mid-1950s written consent from healthy subjects and from only certain patient subjects persisted through the early 1960s and was paralleled in policies of the dod and the aec the view that written consent from patients might unnecessarily interfere with doctor-patient relationships prevailed within the nih dialogue continued throughout the 1950s setting the stage for the leading role dhew was to take in formulating human research regulations in the 1960s see chapter three although the nih was by far the dominant agency in research involving human subjects a significant amount of radioisotope research occurred at the va the va research program employing radioisotopes at va medical centers began in nineteen forty eight this program was limited to va hospitals affiliated with medical schools from its inception this program involved a system of prior group review by local radioisotope committees normally composed of non-va affiliated teaching staff of the affiliated medical school these committees reviewed all research proposals and approved all research conducted at va radioisotope units in its formative years the advisors to the new va program included stafford warren shields warren and others who were likely to be familiar with the consent principles articulated by the aec nonetheless the earliest evidence of a consent policy at the va comes in the form of a nineteen fifty eight general counsel's opinion on whether the va could participate in certain research the general counsel asserted that persons who participate in human subject research must voluntarily consent to the experiment on themselves 
such consent must rest upon an understanding of the hazards involved the volunteer may withdraw from the experiment at any time moreover before the experiment steps to reduce the hazard as for example indicated research on animals must be made this opinion was written in response to two proposed research projects and it is not known if it was implemented in the projects or applied to others conclusion records now available show that at the highest reaches of cold war bureaucracies officials discussed conditions under which human experimentation could take place these discussions took place earlier and in greater although by today's standards uncritical and less searching detail than might have been assumed none the less the stated positions that resulted were often developed in isolation from one another were neither uniform nor comprehensive in their coverage and were often limited in their effectuation several interrelated factors seem to have been prominent in causing these discussions to take place and in determining the scope of the requirements that were declared and the efforts that were undertaken to implement them we summarize these key factors below administrative and legal circumstance the creation of new programs or the qualitative expansion of old ones impelled officials lawyers and researchers to reflect on the rules to govern them while these rules were sometimes cast as legal or financial requirements they often included provisions such as a requirement for written consent that appear similar to statements in requirements that govern the conduct of research today the language used to describe these rules was often that of law or administration such as waiver or release forms or it may have had particular meaning to researchers at the time such as clinical testing as a result it is often hard to compare these rules to current requirements which have benefited from intervening decades of linguistic and conceptual refinement professional cultures differing professions brought their own tools and perspectives to discussions of conditions under which human subjects research could proceed for example lawyers were likely to insist on obtaining documented evidence of patient consent while medical professionals emphasized the importance of the trust that underlay the relationship between doctor and patient they sometimes objected to the use and implications of written consent forms if consent procedures were a source of disagreement the need to minimize risk to subjects was not in creating and administering the aec's radioisotope distribution program physician investigators and other researchers placed a premium on controlling and minimizing risk in the human use of radioisotopes this emphasis on the establishment of administrative and educational procedures to control risk the details of which are discussed in chapter six embodied an essential principle of ethical research the requirement for prior review included in the radioisotope distribution program was as we have seen also present elsewhere even before 1944 approval of the secretary of the navy was required for research with human subjects the secretary of the army required prior approval of research related to atomic biological and chemical warfare in 1953 in the air force secretarial approval of human experiments was codified in 1952 at nih 
prior group review was employed as a policy from 1953 on. The VA, whose program developed under the eyes of AEC experts and advisors, relied on local isotope committees. The Nature of the Subjects while voluntary consent was acknowledged as a condition of human research by some government agencies well before 1944, it was not as broadly applied as it is today. Requirements of voluntary consent were asserted most clearly and consistently where the subjects were healthy. As a practical matter, healthy subjects are not likely to participate in experiments without specific request, and as a legal matter, the invasion of a person's body in the absence of a prior relationship that might justify it has long been unacceptable still more important the arbitrary use of people in experiments is incompatible with respect for human dignity the use of patients in medical research appeared in a different historical context from that of healthy subjects and the agencies appear to have responded accordingly from the perspective of the medical profession the age-old tradition of the doctor-patient relationship as we shall see in the next chapter provided a justification for research with the potential to benefit patients but not of course for healthy subjects who were not under medical care there is little evidence that the agencies questioned whether research with patients that did not offer a prospect of benefit warranted a different response an exception is the position articulated by the AEC's general manager in 1947, which made the possibility of benefit to the patient subject a condition of permissible research, at least where the research involved poisonous or harmful substances. However, there is little indication that this provision was ever implemented. The period we reviewed in this chapter led to considerable public disquiet about the use of healthy subjects and about the use of ill and institutionalized people in research from which they could not possibly benefit. It was this disquiet, in the wake of several well-publicized incidents, that formed the basis of the mid-1960s reforms of federal policy governing research with human subjects. See Chapter 3 the focus on the way that patient subjects were used in clinical research that offered some prospect of benefit and particularly on consent issues came much later the latter discussion is one that continues today as is evident from the advisory committee's work on current research regulation that is described in part three the degree of risk to the extent that there was discussion in the 1940s and the 1950s of consent for patient subjects, it seemed to arise mainly in circumstances in which those who were ill would be put at unusual risk from the research. As we have seen, the AEC's Radioisotope Distribution Division concluded that consent was required where patients were being subjected to larger doses for investigative purposes that apparently posed unusually hazardous or unknown risks. Similarly, from its establishment at mid-century, the AEC's hospital at Oak Ridge, which focused on new and potentially risky experimental cancer treatment, did have routine requirements for consent likewise from its nineteen fifty three birth the nih's clinical center established a policy that recognized that patient choice was important for all kinds of research with patients 
and written consent was required when an experiment involved an unusual hazard formal policies and public morality it is important not to get lost in the details of the various documents we have cited in this chapter what is most significant about the discussions that took place in federal agencies from the mid-1940s through the 1950s is the fact that so many of the ideas and values with which we are familiar were apparent then. This does not mean that the same words were used, or that when they were used they had the same meaning as they do for us today. But it does mean that there were certainly more or less rough ideas about voluntary consent and minimization of risk as we have seen in this chapter these ideas were very much in play in the culture of the time End of section fifteen.